0: Pressure. For leaders, it comes with the territory. The pressure to be decisive, the pressure to have a vision, the pressure to communicate well, the pressure to be ready to step up when it matters most. It makes sense then to understand what pressure is, what it isn't, and how to work with it. My guest today feels that pressure isn't the problem, it's actually the solution. And joining me for this episode of Leader Readycast is Dane Jensen, an expert on pressure and author of the book, The Power of Pressure. He works with corporate clients, elite athletes, leaders, and others to help them thrive in high pressure, high stakes environments. He's going to share with us some of his secrets and insights so that you too will see pressure in a positive light. Dane, welcome to Leader Readycast.
1: Thanks so much, Eric. It's great to be here.
0: It's really good to have you. And thanks so much for doing this. Now let's, let's start with the, with the real basics. How do you define pressure and how is that different from stress?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a great starting point. And actually, this was a little bit of a journey of exploration for me as I did the research to to write the book. Um, And it kind of comes back to the basis of the book, which was really kind of stumbling onto this one really powerful question. I I came to almost think about this question as like a magic portal, (laughs) so to speak, uh, which is, what's the most pressure you've ever been under? And I kind of stumbled on this question by accident, uh, but when I started asking it of people, I realized that it has this unique power because on the other side of it, uh, there is always a great story. And we're, we're gonna get into some of those stories and some of the patterns that I heard in those stories, I'm sure as we go through this conversation. But I will tell you, you know, from the first time I asked this question, what's the most pressure you've ever been under? People routinely would ask me, well, do you mean pressure or do you mean stress? And so I would kind of turn it back around and I would say, well, well you tell me, I mean, what's the difference? Uh, you know, what's the difference for you between pressure and stress? And the, the where I kind of got to on this question is that you know, there are a lot of sort of related physiological states that kind of feel a little bit similar internally. States like stress, pressure, fear, even grief uh, in some cases. But what really distinguishes pressure from, from stress in particular is a little bit of the need to act. And so I'll use a bit of a metaphor, uh, which is that of a basketball game, right? When you are watching a basketball game, and my wife is a perfect example of this, right? We live in Toronto, she's a huge Toronto Raptors fan. Uh, We've had the, the good fortune of going reasonably deep into the playoffs a few times over the last decade. If we're in the fourth quarter in the playoffs and it's a close game, my wife is so stressed that she has to leave the room and get updates by text message right? Because the stress of watching that game, she finds unbearable. So that to me is stress, but it's not pressure, right? Pressure is reserved for the people playing the game, for the players on the court. Pressure is this necessity to act, right? I don't just feel uncomfortable. It's not just that the stakes are high. It's not just that things are uncertain. I got to do something about it. I can actually impact the outcome. And so that really is what's a little bit unique for me about pressure relative to related states like fear or grief or stress is that I got to do something. I actually have to act in this situation.
0: So that to me suggests, you know, I've talked to a number of people through the years, uh, interviewing people who are involved in crises. Some people who say, I get calm in a crisis. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like, there's someone who understands the pressure, but perhaps because they've got the agency to act, they don't necessarily feel stress right? It just, it, it feels like it's a different reaction than those yep. who might panic when they feel the pressure.
1: Totally. Yeah. I think the, you know, the, and this gets at the, you know, the interesting thing about pressure is pressure is not necessarily or entirely about the situation, right? Pressure is the internal response that we have to the situation. Um, and, and I think this is part of what makes pressure so interesting is it's very subjective, right? Two people can be in the exact same situation one of them is feeling huge amounts of pressure and the other to your point is actually quite calm and focused. Um, and I think you know, we can get into a little bit of, of why that is the case or how some people develop that sort of ability to remain calm and centered in the face of what other people would consider a very high pressure situation. Uh, but, but it really does get at the fundamental point, you know, which is, listen, you know, there are certain characteristics that raise the stakes a little bit that make people feel pressure but not everybody feels it the same way, and that has to do with how our brains and how our physiology kind of you know come together to create the internal experience of pressure. Well,
0: that leads me right into my next question because I know that you and I are both both fans of uh, applied neuroscience, and in our courses at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, we talk a lot about going to the basement, the triple F response that takes yep. you down into that primitive space where you are you're just reacting, you're not responding. Um, you know, and you've done a good job of the book of sort of going through and explaining how that and other phenomenon kick in. So, you know, what actually happens to the brain when you face pressure and how can you learn to sidestep those default responses to have a more productive response to uh, the pressure around you?
1: So, you know, I think this is one where we understand certainly more than we used to about what happens to the body when, you know, we experience pressure, there are still some things in particular related to the brain that I think were pretty early days on. We, we know more than we did, but it's still, uh, you know, I think there's still ground to be uncovered, but, but essentially what we want to understand is that the body basically has a gas pedal and a brake pedal at a, at a very high level. When, when we, when we talk about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system and, you know, the sympathetic nervous system, its job is to ready our body, to handle high pressure situations. And the parasympathetic system, it's it's like the brake pedal, its job is to dump off excess energy and bring us back to kind of homeostasis or a more kind of steady state. Um, And so, you know, what happens when we feel pressure is that that sympathetic nervous system kicks in and it does a bunch of things. It, you know, it raises our heart rate, our our respiration rate increases, it preserves blood flow to the core organs. So our peripheral temperature drops and our fingertips and our toes. Um, Our muscles start to tense up, our pupils dilate, our body gets shots of adrenaline and cortisol. And so you end up in this loop of the things that I'm thinking start to trigger physiological responses. The physiological responses, like the elevated heart rate and the quick breathing, start us to think, oh my God, I'm panicking, Uh, you know, I can't handle this situation, I'm going to choke. That starts to reinforce the biological mechanisms, which ricochet back up into the head. Uh, And there is some debate, Eric, about, you know, the direction of travel, there are the cognitivists who go, this starts in the brain, it starts with this, uh, you know, this, this thought that, oh, my God, this is really important, I don't want to screw this up. And that ricochets down into elevated heart rate, muscle tension, there are others who believe that the body responds precognitively, you know, that our heart just starts to accelerate uh, before we have the conscious thought, I can't screw this up, or this is really important. And it's actually the physical signals that, you know, twig the brain. Uh, to start activating uh, the responses up there. But, but it, you know, it really doesn't matter for our purposes. What you wanna know is that regardless of where it starts, it can be a bit of a runaway train where it becomes mutually reinforcing. Our thought patterns trigger our physiology, which reinforce our thought patterns. And that's when we start to get into what you talked about as, as the default responses to pressure, uh, which can be a real trap uh, in terms of our ability to access things like creativity, Uh, our ability to step outside of our biases and reconsider situations from a different perspective, Uh, our ability to take in new information that challenges the way that we understand something. All of those things become severely compressed when we get into that loop of thoughts triggering physiology and rebounding up.
0: It's interesting. One thing we're never going to try and do on this show is resolve an academic debate because... (laughs) <laughs> that can't be done. It's sort of the Full Employment Act for academics. It's to keep arguing over some of these finer points. I think you're right. It doesn't matter where it stops. They they do become a, re- a reinforcing feedback loop. But one thing I'm I'm curious about here is that you know the advice you often hear is to just breathe, sort of as if to, to to exert some control over your physical body in some way will slow everything down and contradict that loop. Is that something you found to be true?
1: Well, I do. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, and I think. This, this kind of gets at, you know, you asked, how do we sidestep the default response and get at some of the, you know, the good stuff of pressure? And I, I think that to me is where something like the breath starts to change the narrative a little bit. But, but let me back up for one second, Eric, because I think your question around, you know, sidestepping the traps or getting out of the default response, you know, I think what I found a little bit puzzling in starting to write about pressure and having you know, taught and, and been a student of pressure for, for a while now is there are two very different stories about pressure, right? There is the story that we just told, which is you start to get activated, your breathing increases, your muscles get tense, you get flooded with adrenaline, all of a sudden you can't access your skills, uh, you know, your, your biases get entrenched, you can't absorb new information, you start to choke, your performance goes downhill. And there is the story that, that quite simply says, well, where do more world records get set than anywhere else in sport? They get set at the Olympic Games. Why? Because there's pressure, right? It's the pressure that actually gives people the energy to put out, out the kind of effort that they need to to do incredible things. What is it as parents that allows us to sustain 90 days you know, of a new child's life on no sleep with abject terror that we're screwing everything up? It's, it's the fact that the pressure is energizing. It gives us energy. You know. It gives us the ability to persevere. And so, I, you know, I got a little bit um, fascinated by this seeming duality of pressure, which is here is this double-edged sword that can have tremendously bad outcomes from a performance standpoint, but also is present in almost every situation in which human beings excel. So how do you explain that, right? How do you explain that the same force can be so bad and so good at the same time? And I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head in your question, which is, It really depends whether you just go with your default, right? You unconsciously roll with the tide of pressure, or you are able to put that space, you know, get out of the basement, to use your language, to put that space between stimulus response and start to actively manage the process of pressure. Because pressure is just energy, right? Whether it gets channeled in positive or negative ways, it is energy. It's a giant ball of energy. And we put the label on it that says, hey, this is pressure. I'm feeling pressure right now. But it's really energy and our ability to kind of observe that to step back to notice the impact that the pressure is having on me, and that from that position. Make the choice to intervene in a way that's productive. That's at the seat of all of this, and I do think the breath is one of the more helpful things that we can do in that moment, for a couple of reasons. First it is very hard for us to get our cognition and our emotional state under control if our physiology is running away from us. And conversely, if we are able to act using the breath to start to activate the parasympathetic nervous system to bring our body back down to a less extreme place, we might not be relaxed, we might not be calm, but to get out of that panic state That starts to drag everything else back in line as well, right? You cannot have a racing mind and a calm body at the same time. You know, if your body starts to calm down, your mind is going to start to calm down as well. So breathing is one of those wonderful tools that if you can get your physiology under control, now you are in a much, you know, a much better place. It's almost like you, you know, switch the car to neutral or shifted to neutral a little bit where you can start to access some of the other skills or tools.
0: So I never knew that my grandmother was such an expert in, in pressure, but when <laughs> she used to always say, take a deep breath. Right. It was the exact perfect advice. Exactly. Now in the book, you lay, you lay out a, new, a number of strategies and I think it's really great to make this distinction that pressure is, and the way you react to it, the way you use it, you can become a positive force or a negative force what are some of the strategies that we can do? And I know there's a differentiation between short-term strategies and long-term strategies. So if you talk about a bit about that, as you explain the strategies, that would be be helpful as well.
1: So, yeah. And, and this really comes back to when I started asking, you know, eventually hundreds of people about the most pressure they've ever been under. um, I learned two things that are kind of opposed to each other. One is that everyone's experience is unique. It's like a fingerprint, you know, pressure is life itself. And I could never guess what somebody was going to come back at me with. Um, You know, I would think I would have a beat on it. I would go, this person's a trauma surgeon. I bet they're going to tell me about this kind of a situation. Nope. You know, they would, they would tell me about something completely out of the realm of medicine, you know, that had happened to them at a different point in their life. I could never guess what situation they were going to come back with. And yet, as I listened to more and more and more and more situations, I did start to notice that there are patterns in pressure. As different as the situations are, there are patterns in what creates pressure and there are patterns in the problems it causes. And and to your question, there are patterns in in what tends to be helpful. Um, And what tends to be helpful really comes back to understanding what it is that creates pressure for us because that gives us a little bit of a roadmap on how to intervene. And again, as different as the high pressure situations are, what I came to learn is that really, if you boil it all the way down, pressure is a function of three things. There are only three things that combine to create pressure. Uh, and so the first of those is importance, right? The amount of pressure that we feel in a situation is directly proportional to the importance that we have assigned to the outcome of that situation. Uh, we don't feel pressure around things that we don't see as important to us. Uh, and so that's the first thing that has to be in the environment to create pressure is importance. Uh, But just because the situation is important doesn't necessarily mean it's going to create pressure. Uh, There has to be a second thing there, uh, which is uncertainty, right? Because no matter how important something is to me, if I know exactly how it's going to turn out, it's, it's not going to create much pressure. We find pressure at the intersection of, hey, this is really important to me, and I don't know how it's going to turn out, right? The outcome is uncertain. And then the third thing is really the the force multiplier for pressure, which is volume, which is just the sheer volume of tasks, of decisions, of distractions uh, that surround our important uncertain situation. And that's really it. If you start to diagnose your highest pressure period or highest pressure moment, I suspect you will find that it mattered to you. It was an important situation. The outcome in that situation was uncertain. And there was some element of volume, just the sheer amount of information or tasks or decisions that you had to process. And so once we start to kind of understand that these are the three things that combine to create pressure, that's when we can start to understand, okay, how do we relate to pressure in a way that gets at the good stuff, the energy under it while sidestepping some of the traps. And so we're gonna intervene on one of those three channels almost every time. And I'll start with uncertainty, Eric. Uh, just because you talked about the difference between, you know, peak pressure versus the long haul, this notion that there are kind of short, intense bursts of pressure versus, you know, longer kind of grind uh, periods of pressure. And what you kind of start to learn is that each of these three things, importance, uncertainty, and volume, they have a very different role if we're talking about peak pressure than if we're talking about the long haul. So to go back to your, your comment about the breath, When I am in a peak pressure moment, my number one imperative around uncertainty is to find something I can control and to exert control as quickly as possible. Because the moment I start to tame the uncertainty to build just a little island, a little beachhead of certainty, that's when the pressure from uncertainty starts to abate. And that's one of the reasons why breath is such an effective strategy under peak pressure is we start to exert some control and the uncertainty starts to alleviate, even if it's just around our physiology. On the flip side, when we're going through unrelenting grinding pressure for like a month or a quarter or a year, if we try to act on every piece of uncertainty, if we just stick to that default mode of act, 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 right? Tame uncertainty, tame uncertainty, tame uncertainty, that's a recipe for burnout. And so the secret over the long haul is we have to come to terms with the fact that there is uncertainty that we cannot tame and be able to get to a place where we can embrace that uncertainty. To roll with it a little bit more. And so, you know, it's a great example of how sometimes it's it's very different in short periods than long periods.
0: No, I think it's a great point you make. And I think, you know, we've all certainly seen this over the last couple of years of the pandemic, which has been one long grind and, and the amount of burnout. And I think, you know, as you describe those two different responses, first of all, there are those people who have to continually act. We've got, you know, physicians and, uh, other clinicians and first responders and others who've been sort of constantly hour after hour day after day just sort of going at this um and, and having and feeling like they have to apply uh use a, a, a short-term strategy uh but then also i i fault some of those who are in leadership positions who uh keep applying that short-term pressure and and as you describe it the threat trying to remove the uncertainty from everything when you can't um and so I, I, and I think,
1: you know, your, your, your example of, of frontline medical workers during the pandemic is, is a perfect example of, you know, here you have a two-year period of the definition of the long haul, right? The grind. And for most of those professionals, it was punctuated over and over again with peak pressure moments, right? Amidst that grind for two years, I think most people, you know, my sister is, is an ER doc, there were also those you know, 10 minute critical moments where somebody came in uh, or a patient was crashing or you know, there was somebody in acute distress and they had to do uh, you know, life-saving emergency surgery. Or, you know. So amidst that kind of grind, there is pe- this pepper uh, or spice of peak pressure moments along the way. And I think to, to your point, the critical thing with uncertainty is when those peak pressure moments hit, it is our job to identify the uncertainty be clear on what we can control and act as quickly as possible, right? That's what we're doing in peak pressure moments. When somebody comes in the ER, right? When the EMTs drop them off, it's like, what can we control? What can we do to alleviate some of the uncertainty in this situation and let's act? The challenge I think is when we are out of those peak pressure moments, when I, as a physician, am engaging over the past two years with an environment that is hugely out of my control, I cannot control the policy responses of government. I cannot control the individual actions of citizens who you know, form their own opinions on how they should relate to the pandemic, to masks, to vaccines. You know, when I take ownership of that and I try to act to tame all of that uncertainty, right? To rail against the government, to convince every person on how they should be, you know, that's when the long haul starts to get really corrosive, right? Because I'm taking the direct action that works so well in the peak pressure moment, but I'm trying to apply it to all the uncertainty that is life itself over the long haul. And that's when we start to build a sense of helplessness that can lead to you know, detachment or, or burnout. So I think it, you know, that is a great example of where we do need a little bit of a different relationship with uncertainty in peak pressure moments than we do over the long haul.
0: And to me, this reminds me, we talk often about trying to find order beyond control because you can't control everything. And it seems to me one of the jobs of those in leadership positions is to, is to create the space where that can happen that is to acknowledge we can't control things like, as you mentioned, the policy uh, response of government or the decisions of individuals. We can't control that. But here's what yeah. we do control, and here's what we're going to do. Uh, or even with the uncertainty, we, we aren't going to be able to resolve the uncertainty, but here's how we're going to resolve. We're going to deal with it as best we can. And if, if leaders are creating those conditions where you, where you acknowledge it, you talk about it, and it becomes a a part of how you're, you're processing the situation, it seems to me it then makes it easier to go between those short and long-term strategies in a way that you don't burn out, but you actually preserve yourself longer. Is they, would that be accurate?
1: I think that is exactly accurate. And it's that combination of our ability to relentlessly search for the things that we can control to tame uncertainty with at the same time, being able to find our way to a patient faith that the uncertainty we can't control will resolve itself in the end. And I think that second one is often tough for high performers who want to be able to tame all that uncertainty. And, and, and I think, you know, sometimes, you, you know, listen, people who are, you know, more pessimistic or, you know, I mean, those people never call themselves pessimists, they call themselves realists. They go, well, you know, I, I, it, it won't resolve itself. Like, you know, this is not Hollywood. Not everything gets a, you know, a story, a fairy tale ending. And my answer to that is, yeah, for sure. And if we can't get ourselves to a place where we have hope, where we have a faith that the future is going to resolve itself in a positive way, that's when the long haul starts to become relentless. And so we have to be able to broaden our you know, definition of what does it mean for things to work out over the long haul. You know, when but, I talk to people about their highest pressure moments, that, you know, most of them did not resolve exactly the way people wanted them to. And almost without fail, they would talk to me about how they worked out. They would say, you know what, that situation really forced me to make a tough decision that I'd been putting off. Or, you know what, that situation really brought me closer to a bunch of people that are now lifelong friends. Or, you know, I really learned something about you know, the skills that I have when the chips are down in that situation, or that really built my confidence to handle those kinds of situations, you know, in the years that followed. And so I think our ability as individuals to not just kind of tolerate uncertainty, but actually to embrace it is rooted in our ability to get to a belief that we will prevail, even if we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but holding that faith that this uncertainty, even though we can't act to tame it, will ultimately resolve in a way that is beneficial, that is, you know, meaningful to us. I think is a really important part of being able to let go a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think it's a big part of being able to, uh, to relax a bit, even amongst, uh, again, these sort of high stakes situations. I remember there was a, there was a ball, baseball player who, and I can't remember the name at this point, who once said, you know, I don't worry about what I control because I control it. And I don't worry about what I can't control because I can't control it.
1: I mean, if we could all get there, you know, I (laughs) that's it. I mean, that's it in a nutshell, right?
0: That's right. That's what you're trying to get to, I guess. Um, And, but one thing you can control, or at least have some control over is self-care. And You write a lot about this in the book is the the proper self-care is an antidote to pressure. So how are diet, sleep and exercise, things like that important for your, for your ability to handle pressure over time?
1: You know, I think that the research on this is just becoming more and more clear over time, which is that it's really hard to be mentally resilient over the long haul if the physical platform is is not there. Um, now, I think where things get a little bit confused for, for people sometimes is... We are not talking, when it comes to, to, to managing pressure anyways, you know, this is not about training to run an Ironman or you know, trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I, I mean, those are wonderful goals. And if, if you're pursuing those goals, more power to you. I think that is phenomenal. And you know, that's not what's required in order to be resilient over the long haul. What, what we're talking about when we talk about self-care is, am I taking care of the basics? Right, and the basics are and have been, you know, since time immemorial: sleep, nutrition, and movement. Um, sleep is at the very foundation of performance under pressure, um, and not only performance under pressure, but health and well-being under pressure. Uh, I think the, you know, the 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 research that's been advocated for and, and surfaced by people like, you know, Arianna Huffington, for example, has been very unequivocal and clear that if you are getting less than seven hours of sleep a night not only are you not performing cognitively to your potential, but you are doing damage to your, you know, to your brain, to your body uh, over time. Actually, one of my favorite experiments on this one, Eric, and this, this comes back to certainly your wheelhouse of crisis leadership, um, there, there was a, a pair of researchers who did this ingenious experiment where they divided their research subjects into two rooms. And the first half of the subjects went into a room where they were kept awake for 26 hours. And the second group went into a room where they were fed a measured amount of alcohol every 20 minutes until their blood alcohol concentration reached uh, a certain uh, level above the legal limit. Uh, And I I mean, I always wonder, uh, you know, what it was like when these two groups met after the experiment, it was like, okay, you know, you have to do what behind door number two? Like they were poking (laughs) us with sticks for, you know, for 26 hours over here. But but what they did is they then administered a test of cognitive aptitude um, every half hour or so to both groups. And what they discovered was that once people had been awake for 18 hours, so that is, if you're getting kind of six hours of sleep or less a night, they had the cognitive performance of somebody with a blood alcohol content of 0.08, which is above the legal limit for operating a motor vehicle in most jurisdictions. Right, Once we are at that state where we are getting less than six hours of sleep a night, we have the cognitive performance of somebody who is legally drunk. And what I find so interesting in organizations is, you know, we would never celebrate the second group. It would never be like, man, Eric's unbelievable. That guy's drunk every day. Like he's, you know, so consistent (laughs) and just comes in three sheets to the wind every, you know, every single day. Meanwhile, the first people, you know, we celebrate them all the time. It's like, Eric's unbelievable. He got back to me at midnight last night. He's the first person online this morning at 6am. Like that guy's just like a dynamo. He's such a productivity machine. And I do think that culture is changing a little bit because of the advocacy and the awareness work that's been done. But I still think there is definitely a bit of a misconception that, you know, no, I'm the kind of person who can just power through this. And that's not true of sleep. It's also not true of of nutrition and movement. You you know, there's some great research out out of Harvard, out of the School of Public Health, talking about the value of movement. And that if we simply replace 30 minutes of sitting with 30 minutes of movement in a day, you know, in our day, it has a statistically significant impact on our mood stabilization, on our reactivity. You know, again, this is not like doing a CrossFit workout every day uh, and and rising and grinding at 5.30 in the morning. This is about adding 30 minutes of movement into your daily routine. That has a noticeable impact on how we relate to pressure and how reactive we get. So so it is really just taking care of the basics more than it is becoming, you know, a finely tuned performance machine, Uh, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that can be a block to people sometimes of getting, getting started on this stuff.
0: And, and there is that uh, it's, it does seem difficult to resolve that, that enduring battle between the research and the mythology mm-hmm. around this, because we you're right. We still celebrate the people who can just keep pushing through it and, and who some, you know, don't sleep a lot, who can, you know, continually think they, they can carry the load themselves.
1: But, when, and I think uh, it's, you know, it's, we make different choices for ourselves than we would make for others and you know i think we kind of intuitively know some of this stuff but we we push it away a little bit you know breaks is another great example right you know i think the research again on breaks is pretty clear which is human beings we, we function most effectively when we work for 90 to 120 minutes and then we take a 10 to 15 minute break in many organizations this is like you know seen as a sign of weakness it's like you know why is Dane taking so many breaks? Like the guy just sat down 90 minutes ago. Why is he up out? You know, where is he? He's he's away on teams again. You know, meanwhile, if you're sitting on an airplane, like you are thrilled that air traffic controllers are are mandated to take a break every two hours, right? Like, you know, nobody's going like, man, those lazy air traffic controllers, like, you know, can they not just sit there and get a full day's work done? No, like I'm thrilled that those guys are taking a break every two hours. And so I think we kind of get it, but for whatever reason, the transfer to our own world, to our own work environment, you know, sometimes is a little bit tricky.
0: Well, it's a, it's important message again for the listeners of this show in particular, many of whom are in crisis response capabilities or preparedness and response. Um, get your sleep, eat well, get the exercise. Make sure your people do as well. And again, it doesn't have to be going for four hours to the gym training for an Ironman. It can be just out uh, getting getting a walk getting out there and, and taking care of yourself a bit, get out of that EOC and, and give yourself a of ce- change of scenery. And there are just reams and reams of research, as, as Dana's mentioned, and, uh, that, that support this in terms of improving performance, which is ultimately what we're all trying to get to, is mm-hmm. the best performance possible for, uh, for the period of time that's necessary. So my last question for you, and you, so you've written about you know, pressure, the good and the bad, uh, we have a pressure-filled world these days. What gives you hope for the future?
1: What gives me hope for the future? You know, I think the, the nature of what I've discovered about pressure, you, you know, pe- people kind of react sometimes to the subtitle of the book, which is why pressure isn't the problem, it's the solution. And they're like, hey, have you been around for the last two years? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you kind of have to be blind to not see some of the problems that pressure is creating for people. Um, and and they're right, right? I, I think, you know, and, and it is a little bit deliberately provocative, because pressure can be a problem. And at the same time, I think, counterintuitively, when I talk to people about pressure, almost without fail, they talk about how it was actually the energy under pressure that gave them the capacity to handle their most challenging situations it was the energy that made them put in the work to prepare it was the energy that allowed them to go the extra mile to do the thing that they wouldn't normally do you know so th- i think that the double edged nature of pressure which is that yes pressure can be incredibly uncomfortable pressure often exists in situations we don't wish to repeat and when people look back on their highest pressure situations, they tend to look back on them as periods of immense personal growth. They tend to look back on them as, you know, periods of contribution in which they were, you know, doing something, they were carrying a heavy load for the benefit of their family, society, uh, you know, their organization, their team. And they tend to look back on them as periods of connection, periods that brought them closer to people, you know, that, that, that bonded them, uh, you know, through going through a shared challenging time or difficult experience with somebody else. And so I do have this hope that in as much as we as a civilization are going through some very challenging high pressure times right now, based on the conversations that I've had with folks, those high pressure moments are often catalysts. They are inflection points in people's lives that trigger things like growth, connection and contribution. And my hope for the future is that this period will do the same for us you know, as a society and as, as a group. Uh, and I, I hope that I'm right. That's my hope for the future, I guess.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I hope you're right too. I think that's because uh, <laughs> we certainly are facing a lot of daunting challenges that are going to require us to, to rise up. Dave yeah. Jensen, author of The Power of Pressure, Why Pressure Isn't the Problem, It's a Solution, CEO of The Third Factor. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Eric McNulty. Until next time, be ready to lead when it matters most. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader Readycast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader Readycast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.